So all the songs we sang have a great deal of um, symbolism that's tied to what we're going to be looking at today. And I appreciate what Chris had to say because he used one of the scriptures we're going to be using in First Peter also. Well, it ties into, of course, this lesson. And one of the things that, that he said, talked about coming in addiction, and I've been able to get to know Chris over the last year a little better and appreciate him and his heart and his uh, desire to serve and his example. But we're all addicted. We're all addicted to sin. You just have a different addiction. And so it's not like, oh, you're worse off than me. In a minute, we're going to look at this. We're all in a bad place without Christ. We're all addicted to sin. We're all in trouble. I'll get there in, in a little while. I need to mention that next week, Julie and I will be out of town. We're going to be in Arkansas for her family reunion, so... We won't be here, but that's, that's where we're going to be. She, her family is large, um, 10 children, 10 brothers and sisters. And since um, about 91, uh, they, we've all been getting together for a family reunion. Of course, when we were overseas, it's every other year we were able to come and be with the family. But uh, that's where we'll be next, next week. Revelation chapter 5, verse 6 and 7 is what we're going to look at today. And as you go to the, this book, Revelation, it begins by stating that you're bl this is a, a book that if you read it, if you listen to it, if you take it to heart, if you apply it to your life, you will be blessed. A lot of people are afraid of this book. They don't like the symbolism. They don't like, I just don't understand it. But listen, in verse 3 of chapter 1, he says, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it because the time is near. And so just for that reason alone, you should read it, even if you don't understand it. It's okay, read it. It says you will be blessed, and I think God will help reveal what, what it's saying to you. And then this first chapter, and we did this in 2018, by the way, if you weren't here, we went through chapter 1, 2, and 3. And in, uh, in this, this uh, first chapter, he centers you in on where our center should be. And that is on Christ, our focus of our life. And we come in face-to-face -face contact with this marvelous being that when, when John saw him, he said in verse 17, I saw him and I fell at his feet as if dead. I just collapsed when I saw him. And it makes me think that when we go to stand before the living God, every knee will bow. We will collapse. doesn't matter how prepared we are. This is, uh, this is symbolism. It's amazing symbolism. But the reality of it, every knee will bow. And when that happened, it says, he placed his right hand on me. And he said, this is great. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Our natural reaction is just to, to quake in fear. And he says, do not be afraid. And he tells you why. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. 
I was dead, and behold, I am alive <clears throat> forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. I'm in control of life and what happens after life. I'm in control of death and what happens after we physically die. And then we get into chapters 2 and 3, and it brings us from this marvelous scene of being with Jesus to the physical reality of our lives. This is what happens. This is what goes on in the seven churches there. And he says, here are seven churches, and they represent us. We, we can see ourselves in every one of these churches. And we look at these churches, and we see their struggles. We see their sins. We see their persecutions, their faith, their growth, their love. We see them being commended. And we see them being corrected. That's, this, is, this is where we are. This is reality right now. And these very struggles that we go through on a daily basis are the things that with, without us, we don't want this, but it, we, we have this distraction. We're looking at our glorious God and Father and Christ and the Lamb and, and then suddenly life distracts us. And it, it's so subtle so easy that it will happen to every one of us as we walk out. As we walk out today, we will suddenly, our focus will go off of where it should be. And so in chapters 4 and 5, he says, look, I'm going to open this door back up to heaven. I'm going to show you the reality, the reality of realities. This is what is really real. Yeah, this is real, but you want, if you want to know what's really real, Go into the doors of heaven and you'll see what is really real. And this is how life works. This is, this is the foundation of everything. This is the center of everything. And right at the center, there's a throne. There's a ruler. There's one in charge. There's one in control. And what happens on this planet Earth is not complete chaos. You may think it is at times as you look around, but it's not complete chaos. And no matter how destructive and terrible and no matter the depths of evil that the world descends into, there's one who is on the throne and who remains on the throne. He is in charge in the worst of times. And so we look last week, chapter 5, we opened this scroll. And this, I think, is essentially a map it is a, uh, it just maps out, this is how life works out. This is, this is life on planet Earth. But the revelation remains hidden until someone is capable of opening up. We don't know until someone can open up the scroll and show us this is, this is the way life works out on planet Earth. In the entire universe, every man, every woman, every angel, archangel was given the opportunity to open the scroll. If we can only know its contents, we won't be caught off guard. We'll know what happens is under God's control, his goodness, his will. This is the way, this is the way life is. But out of the billions and billions who ever existed, there was only one, one single individual that was worthy or capable of opening up this scroll. And so we see this, this is Satan's task. This is what Satan tried to do. He knew that if he could make this one person fall, he would not only change the course of humanity, but he would change the course of the entire universe. He would destroy the entire universe, defeat him, and he wins. 
And so John's heart is broken. He wept and he wept when the universe was silent for a moment. When the angel called, who is worthy to open the scroll? And then an elder, one of the redeemed, one of the ancient redeemed or the present redeemed, he pointed out, he said, look, the line of Judah, the root of David, he is worthy to open the scroll. He is victorious. I think that this particular scene that we go into parallels or is actually what happened when Jesus said in John chapter 20, do not cling to me, Mary, because I have not returned to the Father. I'm returning to the Father. I think this is what happened after he returned to the Father, what we're reading at least symbolically in chapter 5. Let's read it together, verse 6 and 7. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. That's all the time we have today because this is marvelous. This is marvelous. Last week I teased you. I said, maybe I'll tell you what the scroll says. And I'm going to go ahead and give you a very, very brief idea because I don't know if or when we'll ever get to chapter 6, literally. And so a quick explanation. I'm not going to go into details. I'm just going to show you a quick what, what, I, think, what I think this is saying. Chapter 6 and 7 and the first part of chapter 8. The seven seals as they're opened up. And to me, okay, you can disagree with what I say as long as it's consistent with the Scripture. All right, when you interpret it, interpret it according to the Scripture. This is my interpretation as close as I can to what the Scripture says. And I think this is God's will. This is what Christians can expect in life. This is what you can expect in life now that there is Jesus on the throne. Here it is. First, there's a white horse. The seal is broken, a white horse comes. This is the spread of the gospel. When, the, when Christ came, he says, now the good news is going to be spread throughout the world. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. This is the white horse. This is the good news being spread out. And so you would expect a positive response from people when you're preaching peace with God. That's what we preach, peace with God. And you would expect a positive response or you would expect a positive response from people when you say, we're teaching to love one another. We're trying to learn how to love one another and teach, one, uh, teach each other how to uh, love one another and treat each other in love and treat the world with love. So you'd expect glorious things, but what you get is a red horse, which is death, martyrs. People are killed because of this good news of Jesus on the throne. And then third, there's a black horse, and this is another form of persecution. Even though there's plenty of food, it actually names food that you can buy and eat. There's no money to buy it. Christians have lost their jobs. They've lost their place in society. I walked through Ephesus where I saw the, the area. I don't know the exact point, but the area where this huge grocery store was. It's called an agora. It's a, a marketplace. And before you could buy and sell in there, you had to take... Uh, a pinch of, of, of incense and say Caesar is Lord before you could do that. And Christians couldn't do it. 
right there in that city of Ephesus. They couldn't buy, they couldn't sell. The food was there, but they couldn't do it. It's another form of persecution. And then fourth, there's natural disasters, the pale horse, natural disasters. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you won't be affected by accidents and natural disasters. This is the way life is. This is what you expect. The, the seal is open, and yes, you go, and many of us as Christians, we come into Christ and we say, now my marriage will be fixed. Now uh, life will go well. Now my job will go well. Now that now I'll be protected. And I'm telling you, he's opening up the scroll, and he says, Christians, don't be fooled by that. If that's the message your preacher is preaching you, it's, a, it's not the message. The gospel goes out to people and you might die for it and you might lose your job for it and you might be ostracized and you might get killed in an accident. It just might happen. That's the way life is. And people don't like this. People say, don't preach that. Don't say those things. That's discouraging. That gives us fear. No, you haven't read the rest of Revelation or the Bible. And, and we ask the question, the next, the next seal, it's like, how long, Lord? We have these, these people who have died, and they just say, how long will, will justice take place? You know, we, we're, we come to you, Lord, and we serve you, and all we get is killing and losing our jobs and dying, and, and when will justice take place? Yeah, it's a natural question to ask. That's the next seal. It's okay to ask the question, he says. But listen to God's answer. Be patient. Just wait a little while. We don't like that answer, do we? But that's what he says. God's in control. And when the accident happened, when the tornado comes through, when bad things happen, when you lose your job, when you're not invited to the party because you're a Christian, when your persecution is on a one level or a ten level, whichever level it is, and we ask the question, how long, God, until justice comes? He says, be patient. Just be patient. Wait a little longer. It's not time yet. And then the sixth is a judgment. There is a judgment on earth. I believe this is a judgment on earth. It's not the final judgment. That's the seventh seal. But the sixth seal is a judgment. And I call it God's wrathful grace. This is God's wrathful grace that allows your life to fall apart so that you can turn to him before the final seal is opened. All of us in this room, our lives fell apart at one point. When we came to Jesus, we realized we don't have it all together. We aren't in control of our lives. We were arrogant. We were boastful. We thought we knew everything. And then we got hit right in the face with life. God's wrathful grace that brings us to him in repentance. And we can thank him for this judgment on earth before that final judgment, which is the seventh seal. Turning to God and coming to terms of, of peace with him doesn't mean that the world is going to have peace with us. Learning to love doesn't mean that the world is going to love us. And God does not want you as a Christian to be fooled by the lie of the world. And one of the greatest lies going around in Christian circles today is that all God wants for you is to, is to be happy and be nice. 
That's a lie. And that's not my opinion. I can just read you all. I can read you clearer scriptures than Revelation. We've been, we've, we've approached Christianity, I, I'm afraid, as salesmen. We want to sell Christianity. We want to give you a good sales pitch. You need to become a Christian because then your life is going to be fine and everything's going to be good and you're, you're going to be taken care of and it's going to be wonderful. Everything's going to be wonderful. Now, I've got to always say the opposite. I always got to, what do you call it? Not justify, explain the other foot, whatever. <laughs> I can't think of the expression. You follow God's way, yeah, your marriage can get better and your life is better. It is better, actually. And, and there's a peace and anxiety can go away. And yes, all those things, good things can happen. But that's not God's plan to, for you just to have a happy, nice life. Chris read the scripture in a minute. I will read it in a moment too. No suffering, no persecution, no spiritual battles, no daily repentance, no change in your life. That's all part of Satan's attempt to make you take your eyes off of a suffering Savior. We're called to follow a suffering Savior. To this you were called. You say, oh, God has called me to whatever. I'm going to tell you in the scripture what you're called to. In the context to this, it's suffering. You, amen, you are called <laughs> to suffering. Why? Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Here's the Christian message. You come to God and you're at peace with God and you're saved and God's love is on you, and he's going to teach you, and you're going to grow in Christ, and you're going to suffer for him. And we say, don't teach that, because then people won't follow. Jesus said, if, my, if I am lifted up, all men will come to me. If people see me suffering, all men will come to us, and we try to, we try to make it nice, and no, 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 that's not true. Just be nice to each other. Be, no, it's not a suffering. Don't, we're, you, yeah, yeah, it's kind of bad sometimes, but it's really not. God calls us to a suffering Savior. And we don't like that message, but it is God's good and its perfect will that we don't fully understand. But we're going, to get, we're going to understand some of this. You see, we have this paradox, paradox of Christ. The elder turned to, to um, John and said, look, there's a, there's a lion of the tribe of Judah. There's a lion there. And he turned, and what do you see? A lamb. Paradox. Jesus came into the world. He wasn't often what we expected him to be. People were confused. Read the Gospels. We're going through Mark on Wednesday nights. And we see this confusion that people have. They're always amazed and wonder. And they're you know, trying to figure him out. Because he's not the, the Jesus, the, the Messiah they thought he would be. The expectation of a despotic king. But they had a servant king. The idea of the son of God wielding power. But acting in love. Confused his followers. Dying to give life. Being a slave in order to be first. That's just some of the paradoxes of following Christ as king. And so when John saw this lamb, he, he had to be surprised because 
for a couple of reasons, but he said, look, the lion, and he sees a lamb, and the NIV says, see, behold, and that word could, could be roughly translated as surprise. <laughs> it really could. It just means surprise. You look and see a lamb, lion, and you see a lamb. But not only a lamb, but this word means a little lamb. The, the weakest of all lambs. The, word, the closest word I could get is a lambkin. We don't even use that word, I don't think. It's an old word. It's a little lamb. It's not the year-old lamb that is sacrificed, but there's this, this little baby weak lamb. And further, his throat was split. It was slain. This is a confusing picture. It's the lion that's a little, tiny, baby, weak lamb that has his throat split, and it's standing up. <laughs> it's standing. It's, it's alive. And it gets the, the picture gets even wilder. It has seven horns, seven horns. I've seen two horned, horned animals, but seven horns. And, and all this represents is power. And you, you know this. When, when you, the number seven is complete power, all right? And when you think of horns, if you've ever dealt with animals, the ones with horns are the worst ones to deal with. You ever see those long, the, what, what are they called, Texas longhorns? Man, those are fearsome-looking animals. All right, the, 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 this, the, that's all it meant. And so you see one place in De Deuteronomy chapter 33, it says, In majesty, he is like a, fir a firstborn bull. His horns are the horns of a wild ox. With him, he will, he will gore the nation. That's all the horns meant. So when you see horns, don't get pulled away with, well, where are the seven horns on his head or anything like that. Just realize it just means power, power, and the ultimate power. We use the word omnipotent to talk about that. Seven eyes means it's full of knowledge. He, he can see everything. And I think the, the echo that I hear is over in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10, where he says, who despises the day of small things, which is kind of an interesting thing. I don't think he's talking about a lamb here, but I like the terminology tying it back here. Small things. But he says, men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. David or Robert can explain all that to you. But then it says this. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the earth. These seven, the things that he's talking about. And what are the seven things that are tied back to verse 4 um, where he says, uh, no, no, verse 6 where he says, this is the word not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord Almighty. This ties into the Spirit. So the eyes that range throughout the world just means he sees all. He, he knows all. He sees all. He has all power and all might. And then we see this word lamb for the first time in Revelation. 29 times you see it in, in the book of Revelation. So it has to be important. The lion that is a lamb... The lion who is a freshly slain lamb. And I believe, as I said, I believe this particular verse is when Jesus entered right after his crucifixion and resurrection. Let's, let's look at this word, the Lamb of God, this phrase, the Lamb of God. You know, our songs, we sing songs all, all the time about Lamb of God. 
having lived overseas and been in cultures that I did not understand, and I sat there and tried and figured out things as I heard things around me, I often wonder what people think if they have no clue about Christianity and they come in here and they hear us singing about a lamb. It, it, it's strange. And so I'm sitting there watching a, 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 a wedding at a Hindu uh, wedding and had the people who invited us and all these strange things to me are happening. And to them it's just normal. And so I'm asking questions. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? They're tying the string around the arm. What does that mean? And they're walking around and they're doing, what does that mean? And so we have Lamb of God and we kind of just grow up with it. And I don't think we really know what it means sometimes. We sing an old Lamb of God, sweet Lamb of God. I love the Holy Lamb of God. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? What a strange thing to say. <laughs> if you really think about it, move yourself from growing up in Christianity and, and talk about being washed in the blood of a lamb. Is there, there's power in the blood of the lamb. Another song. I found a list of over 1,400 songs that refer to Jesus as lamb. There's a lot of songs that we sing. Do we really know what we're saying? And yet, there's only three references in the Bible besides the book of Revelation. If it wasn't for the, this, this lamb uh, symbolism in Revelation, I think we'd miss it totally. And the three are, I'm going to just go through them real quickly. John is standing there, John the Baptist, his disciples are there. Jesus walks by and says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He says it twice in chapter 1. And then in Acts chapter 8, Philip approaches a eunuch who is obviously sitting in a chariot and he's reading obviously out loud from the book of Isaiah and he reads this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, he opened not his mouth and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I? How can I understand this unless someone explains it to it? And it says he began to explain it to him and showed him Jesus from that passage in Isaiah. And then the passage in 1 Peter 3, uh, 1, verse 18 and 19, that Chris read a few minutes ago. For you know it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed, but by the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So we see this lamb in Revelation. This lamb. What does it mean? When Peter and John the Baptist used it, they used a, a, a word that meant a year old lamb. The one that was ready to be sacrificed. And then in Revelation, he changes the word and it's, a, just a, it's, it's a similar, it's a diminutive. It just means a little baby lamb, as I said. That's all it means. And so we get this paradox, and the paradox continues that this little lamb, all throughout Revelation, it says things like this. The lamb has authority, a lamb with authority, a lamb that's victorious, that's silly. A lamb in control of history, a lamb that is worshipped, a lamb that has wrath. A lamb that is married to the church, described as married marriage, the bride of the, uh, we're the, the marriage of the lamb. A lot of strange things. And in this passage, it shows him as a cutthroat, freshly sacrificed lamb. Sacrifice. Wow. Sacrifice. That's not something we really relate to. I, I think most people in the Western world don't. Animal sacrifices aren't something we're really familiar with. I, I kind of got... a 
in touch with it a little bit in Fiji. Had a good friend whose father was involved with uh, witch doctors. <clears throat> and he was told often he had to cut the throat of a chicken and pour out the blood and then present the chicken to the witch doctor who had it for dinner. All right. That was part of, you know, I saw a little bit of it, but not like this. Under the Jewish law, there was hardly any sacrifice that a lamb wasn't used. Daily burnt offerings at the temple, morning and night, lambs were used. You read through Leviticus and Numbers, lambs were used for trespass offerings, the Nazarite vow, women's purification, peace offerings, redemption of the firstborn during feast days, on and on and on. We see this lamb over and over being offered. And so when a Jew heard, look, the Lamb of God, boom, they knew, sacrifice. They connected to their lives, what they did, what they grew up with, what was happening in the temple every single day. But then you have this Passover lamb, which is the lamb of lambs. This lamb is the lamb that represents all other lambs, the Passover lamb. And Reading in, in Exodus is the most important, the most significant. Uh, Exodus is, is during the last plague, the last plague, ten plagues. They're trying to leave Exodus, exit uh, uh, Egypt, exit Egypt. We can't say two E's together. Exit Egypt. That's why it's called Exodus. And so we, we sit there and we hear the story and, and God says, now I want you to take a lamb. And he told him how to slaughter it and take some hyssop leaves and Put, dip it in the blood and put it over the doorpost. And tonight, when I pass over, when I pass through Egypt, taking the firstborn of every person, every person, I will pass over the houses with the blood on the door. That's why it's called Passover. And so we had this Passover lamb. And the, the word is Pascha. And this word Pascha meant the Passover feast. And the Passover lamb. It meant you, you could not separate the two. So we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, some of you, when I said only three places it's used, some of you smart ones said, oh, there's another place. I know there's another place. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. The word lamb really isn't there. It's for Christ, our Pascha, our Passover meal, our Passover lamb. Yes, he's both. He has been sacrificed. The Passover lamb meant deliverance from physical death for them. And for Christ, the Passover lamb means spiritual deliverance from the power, the penalty of sin. Forgive me, we're running out of time. Why a sacrifice? Let me touch on this really quickly. This is troubling for a lot of people. Why can't God simply forgive men's sin? Why can't God just say, okay, I forgive you. If you say, I'm sorry, I'll forgive you. Why can't God do that? Richard Dawkins, a popular spokesman for atheists a few years ago. He still may be popular. I don't know. I quote him here. He says, why was it necessary to have a human sacrifice to have his son tortured and executed in order that the sins of mankind be resolved, uh, absolved? He asked the question. I don't know if he asked that honestly because his next statement makes me question the honesty of his question. Even though some of you have that question in your heart, why? And it's an honest question. But Richard Dawkins said this. Is that not the most disgusting idea you've ever heard? It's disgusting. And I think as Christians we need to try our best to honestly answer. 
a challenge like that. I'm going to do this. I can give you books you can read, but I'm going to give you just a very short answer. Our problem is we do not realize how horrible our sins are. That's our problem. You see, sin isn't just doing bad things. Sin infects your basic nature of people. It makes you less than what God originally created you to be. It makes you put your place, yourself, in the place of God. It tries, you are trying to do what Satan is trying to do, putting yourself in the place of God. And it's, it's not being less in the sense that I, I can't, I can't be a better person, but it's that my soul is horribly disfigured. And our society teaches you just the opposite. Modern psychology says you are a basically good person. You're a good person. Live up to your goodness. And scripture says that's a lie. And here's another message you don't want me to hear. You don't want me to say But the scripture says that all goodness was lost in sin. Read chapters 1, 2, 3 of Romans. Go through it. And he ends it up by saying there is no one righteous. No, not one. All have turned away. They've all together become worthless. You know, you have to know the bad news before you can hear the good news. And this is part of the bad news. We are worthless before God. We are not righteous. And history is filled. I I just gave the book to to, uh, Vicki here that that she lent me called Made in Hungry. And I mentioned it last week. And this is just one little tiny book of the horrific things good people do in a given situation And I'm telling you that you will do awful things if you are put in the place and allowed to just disintegrate into the depths of who you are without God. The only salvation we have, the only hope we have is that our redeemed self can say no to sin when the pressure comes on. You know in your own life that payment of sin must be made. How many times have you thought or said, you'll pay for that? You'll pay for that. You did that to me. You put me down. You called me a disparaging name. You backstabbed me at work. You made me look bad. You blamed me for something I didn't do. Why why can't you just forgive them? Why can't you just say, that's okay, that's fine. You don't do it yourself. You don't do it yourself. You sit there and say, I'm going to get them. I'm going to get them. I'll make them pay. Because there is a sense in you that God has given you that a wrong must be righted. That's, that's a good thing. The, that feeling that you're having that something must be made right is a good thing. Justice must prevail. God must, justice must prevail. But our problem is we don't do that well. And so God said, do not take revenge because you don't do it well. You don't know what you're doing. Don't take revenge. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'll do it. I'll take care of it. Be at peace. Wait a little longer. It's going to happen. That's the fifth seal. I'll take care of it. You just keep on going. You just keep on learning how to love. We can't right the wrongs we've done. We can't take back the words we've said. We can't undo the things that have been done to us. We can't do it. Only God can do that. 
And the evil in this world is so great that only he can right the wrongs. And it brings us to another uh, paradox. Only a perfect man can take the place of sinful and perfect people. And so the cross, as I look at it, says my sin, my misdemeanor sins, my felony sins, whichever I have, they put Jesus on the cross. My sin was that horrible. That's why he had to die. John 14, verse 9, it says that it was the day of par- uh, preparation for the Passover is about noon here's the interesting thing it's not a coincidence at the same moment that the temple Passover was being taken place they were slaughtering, slaughtering Passover lamb after Passover lamb over Passover lamb right there in the temple the very same time Jesus was on the cross the Passover lamb the ultimate Passover lamb Christ's sacrificial death should motivate us to live as we should when you kill an animal and eat it, we don't do that. We, most people don't do that anymore. You go to the store and you buy it ground up already. That's a real animal that was there. When my son was in the army and going through training, they gave him a chicken and a rabbit. You lose these, you lose your food. You're not going to have anything else for the next few days with you five people. And when you kill that chicken and when you kill that, lamb, that uh, rabbit for your food, don't disrespect it. Don't play. If you play around with that chicken, we'll take it away from you. You'll go hungry. The army said, treat that animal with respect. When you kill that animal, when you slit its throat, you realize it's given his life for your life so that you can eat of his life and you can live. And Jesus used the same analogy. He says, eat of me and live. Drink of my blood and live. Christ calls us to eat of him, to live. He calls us to suffer. And he said in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he says, I want you to suffer. As you suffer, you rely on the power of God. Just as you see the death of Jesus and you rely on his power, when you suffer, don't rely on your power. Rely on his power. Worldly freedom promises a freedom where there's no obligations or commitment to God. There's no obligation or commitment to marriage and family. You're free. You're free. It's a promise to increase your wealth, increase your comfort. That's freedom in, of the world. The Christian gospel gets in, way, in the way of the worldly gospel. The gospel of utopia on this earth comes into conflict with the Christian gospel because the Christian gospel says you have to give up your life for others. The world's freedom is a promise of happiness. Christian freedom is a promise of life. But it says there's a path of suffering. Timo Kritzka was a filmmaker in Braslavia. He documented the Slovak survivors of communist persecution. Happened in the 20th century. I walked some of those streets in 1977 where it was happening. He documented and filmed people who suffered as Christians under a totalitarian rule. And he stated this, that the true answer to freedom is is in accepting suffering. He said this, accepting suffering is the beginning of our liberation. Suffering can be the source of great strength. It gives us the power to resist. It is a gift from God that invites us to change. 
to start a revolution against the oppression. But for me, the oppressor was no longer the totalitarian communist regime. It's not even progressive liberal, a progressive liberal state. Meeting these hidden heroes started a revolution against the greatest totalitarian ruler of all, myself. That's where the greatest battle is. This is why we need a lamb. This is why we need a lamb that will take away the sins of the world. This is why we need a lamb to take away my sin. And it's only by the sacrifice of the Lamb of God that we can defeat, defeat sin in our lives and live lives free through Christ. God bless our study on Revelation 5, verse 6 and 7. There's a peace I've come.